Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the words and narratives shaping the industry. I'm Rich Gould. You can follow me on Twitter at Rich G. And I'm here with my co-host Jennifer Riggins, as always. You can follow her on Twitter at JK Riggins. And in this week's episode, we're talking with Jessica Rose. Now, Jessica is the, or a, DevRel at Codesy. So she's currently in a job share and we're going to talk to her a bit about that. But she's also really passionate about developing talent in technology and she has a lot of insights into learning and cultivating people's skills and opening up the industry to people that might otherwise find it hard to get into it. Um, So we're going to talk to her about that. We think you're going to really enjoy the conversation. So thanks for joining us, Jess. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So a good place to start is just to kind of get a little bit more background on you. So who are you, what do you do, and kind of what do you do at Codesy as well? Yeah. Uh, and who doesn't love to talk about themselves? Uh, so I've, um, I'm sort of, I'm the matron aunt of a, a tiny corner of the the tech industry. I've been doing a lot of one-on-work, one-work and advocacy work, uh, mostly focused around access to technical education and then access to meaningful work in tech, which sounds very grand. But I've been working in developer advocacy for some time where I must confess, I'm always a bit suspicious that it's a job. And I, I get, I'm working with Codesy and we're an early stage startup that's still in stealth. And I get to talk to developers. I get to feed stuff back into product. It's like very fancy technical facing marketing. Uh, Oh, there's going to be some DevRels fussing at me like, oh, we're not marketing. But it's really, really lovely. Um, And something I'm really enjoying about the current company is we work in the space of understanding and reading code, whereas most conversations I see in uh, in tech are writing code and refactoring, like really active. And having been a teacher before I came into tech, the idea of, oh, these principles we apply to literacy and these principles we apply to understanding, how does more deeply understanding our code and building tools to support support that meaningfully change the way we we learn and communicate around things. And could you talk a little bit just quickly about Code C? So yeah, what the company is and sort of what it does and, oh, and also God, like yeah. why you joined as well. And what is stealth? Yeah. What can you I know? Oh gosh, of course that's rubbish. Um so stealth <laughs> is a concept around early stage startups. You you've got a product and you're starting to show a couple people and get feedback, but you're not allowed to brag about or talk about what you do too openly yet. So I'll, I'll tell you what I'm allowed loud too. <laughs> and yeah, early stage startups, if uh, if our dear listeners haven't been involved with them before, are much, much smaller companies. They tend to be higher risk, higher rewards. Oh gosh, we've got enough money to be around for a year or two, or the most I've ever heard of is three. Let's get something together and bring it to market. And I'm really, really excited to find myself at Codesy because I think I swore I'd never be at another early stage startup. The team is just absolutely fantastic. And the way they, they sort of, I want to say suckered because it's decidedly positive, but the way they lovingly convinced me as I did a bit of consulting work uh, with the CEO, Shania, who's, who's just lovely. And yeah, looked around the product and it felt, while I can't like, oh, it does this, ah, it felt a lot like, not to date myself too terribly, but in the late nineties, when you looked at a website or when you looked at a project, you could view the source and just magically see what it did. Uh, and what Codesy's building like felt as a, as a consultant, as somebody doing a little bit of work with them, felt like that kind of view source magic applied to a JavaScript driven world and immediately joined them. 
Uh, what's really weird and interesting is they let me put together a job share. Uh, so we've only got one DevRel headcount, one person in my job, but it's me and uh, Ramon, who's just absolutely brilliant, splitting it in half. So we're both there half the week and get to take naps and ponder the apocalypse and do side projects the rest of the time. Tell us more about that, because I think you're one of the reasons I want to have you on the show is because I think it's an awesome idea. It's a great job sharing is a great idea for inclusion and for diversity and belonging and everything and for like work life balance, God forbid, because we are in the world of burnout. How did this work? How does this logistically work? Yeah, it sounds very improbable. So tell us about it. So the first thing I want to say is I want to recognize that I'm impossibly privileged in this situation. Um, I'm working for a company based out in San Francisco, but I'm living in a much lower cost of living area. So I'm living in Birmingham, but the British one, um, which means I'm able to work as a contractor. I'm able to, if any of your dear listeners are in the States, national healthcare is just the best. I can't even tell y'all. I just got very American there. And when we first started, we were sort of swapping off. We'd be there two and a half. I'd be there two, the first two and a half days a week. He'd be there the next two and a half. And we've sort of evened it out where we're both sort of doing half days throughout the week. So we're, we're there at the same time, but there's only half of us around. Um, and logistically, it's been fantastic. So Ramon's a much stronger JavaScript developer than I am. Um, and he's got a lot of really, really fantastic skills that I don't have. And I'm roughly 7 million years old. So I've got a lot of reasonably well-developed uh, skills on the strategy side. So being able to say, oh, cool. As an early stage startup hiring, you need somebody who can do both of these skill sets. And hiring for both of these is rather challenging. What if we split this in half? Yeah. And just for listeners, since it's not video, uh, Jess looks as young as she sounds. So that was a (laughs) statement. I appreciate it. (laughs) This is really interesting. I think it's very interesting because we have this fallacy of the full stack developer, the full stack, whatever, but with job share, you actually could create a team like that. Uh, Your, what do we call it? Your co-sharing partner? your co-job sharing partner. Um, My work better half. Yeah. Are they in a different time zone? Are you able to establish a different role with the developer community? How does that work? It's fascinating. So we're, we're still very stealthy. So we're still waiting to see how how well folks like it and how the the, the rapport varies. But Ramon's just an hour offset. He's, um, is he in, he's in Vienna. So a lot of the team is based in the U.S. West Coast. So we're offset a bit and tend to work our evenings, our afternoons. And I don't want, of course, I want to lovingly bully any employer that's listening to me. Say, please, please offer this as an option. This is an especially good fit for people who who want to do side projects or people who have caring responsibilities. Um, I've seen a lot of returner programs. So folks who had left the tech industry and come back start with job shares. So it's a really fantastic way to get sort of senior talent that needs a little bit of support coming back in in uh, but it's not cost free so there are there's two of us so there's twice as many one to ones for example we have to sync and there's the extra overhead with communicating so there are costs to having two people sharing the same job but very selfishly and and for for other people I'd like to see given given similar opportunities it does mean that you get sort of twice the skill set and twice the perspective and that together even with the extra communication overhead we're able to do a lot of stuff that we wouldn't be able to do either by myself or by his himself it also seems an interesting fit for the role because something that a theme across these interviews we've been doing is, well, it's it's very appropriate because how I got to know you was at a monkey gras where you spoke about burnout. 
um, a conference a couple of years ago, but I think DevRel unto itself is so openly defined and there's so many things you can do that it can lead to burnout. So splitting up tasks especially with self-organization seems a very logical fit for the world. Yeah. And I quite like it as, as sort of a skill sharing experience as well to say, oh, wow, you know, I'm less confident on JavaScript tasks where people can see me that are performance tasks. Cool. I could pair with remote and really, really get this up. And remote hasn't done as much sort of early stage uh, strategy planning. So say, oh, cool. Let's go ahead and swap these skills, which is really exciting. I'm always really cautious around burnout and DevRel specifically. There are relatively so few of us DevRels and we get so much, um, so many really interesting public facing opportunities. We get to come on podcasts, we get to come on. And I'm always really conscious of like, yeah, I do see burnout as a really, really serious issue in my specific niche. But when I look at burnout in the tech industry and when I look at burnout, like especially in the wider world of work, so moving it beyond tech, I'm less, yeah, I managed to burn out gloriously several times. I see DevRel teams burning people out, getting burned out and, and getting to recover when you're making more money than a single mom working two jobs, minimum wage. Yeah. It's one of these things where I want to be conscious, like, yeah, this is a really serious problem in my tiny niche of the tech industry and in the tech industry overall. But looking at that and saying, oh, do you know what this feels like the types of pressures and the types of structural issues that exist within the wider economy. And we're just feeling it in a slightly less pinchy way. No, I get that. So I want to come back to burnout a bit later. Maybe that can kind of of form a circle with the conversation. But before we kind of get to that, I wanted to ask you about kind of accessibility and starting out in the tech industry. So you mentioned that was something you're interested in at the start, but I guess maybe a good way of sort of framing it is just to know, or just to kind of get to know what what did you what do you remember when you were starting out like what did you find hard about learning like what was the yeah what do you remember in those kind of early days I think that a lot of what was really, really challenging wasn't the, oh, I need to learn these skills to get this done. Decision paralysis is a bit of a challenge. So, oh gosh, there's all of these different things I could learn. Everybody's terribly opinionated and yelling, which is the correct route. But instead, the less explicit, if you need to learn PHP, if you need to learn Java, if you need to learn data science, there are some really fantastic paid and free resources out there. The things I find, uh, I found really challenging myself and the things I find I hear people talk about as challenging. Uh, So I've been doing open career advice calls for the past seven, eight years. So more, yeah, more than a couple thousand folks at this time, just short one-off calls talking about what they're wanting to do and whether, whether or not I have any insight that might be useful, mostly just listening. And one thing that was hard for me and seems to be hard for a lot of people is the stuff that's not taught. So Here's here's this language that's being used in job interviews and in job descriptions. What can I ignore? And why are they including this if I can ignore this? The way you need to position yourself in conversations. Um, I got some very bad, very good advice from a former romantic partner when I was looking for my first job in tech. And he told me, well, you know, because I'd, I'd applied for, I think, 120, 130 jobs trying to break into tech. And he said, well, you know, you need to be applying for these jobs before they're posted. And How? We're, we're, we're a podcast, so nobody can see my, you what, face. They're just like, what? Put? What? No, that's not a... But with time and experience, what they meant and what, what I've been trying to counsel other folks for is 
that job hunting in tech is inherently network closed. So people hire within their networks, people hire their friends. That's why teams look alike. That's why it's so hard for people breaking out. And the advice I was really trying to puzzle out was, hey, you need to be talking to people in industry and trying to get introductions and trying to get these conversations started outside of the context of a job posted on Monster or Indeed, where hundreds and hundreds of people are going to be applying. And ethically, I think that's one of the the things I continue to have a hard time with in my one-to-one calls. So the most useful thing I can do for people is like, oh, you're looking for work. I'm going to go ahead and go through my Rolodex or I'm going to sit down. Who can I introduce you to? Who who might be able to leverage their relationships or who might be able to to hire you directly? Um, But being aware that this is, yeah, a click that doesn't need to happen, that this in-network hiring is inherently exclusionary and that, yeah, oh, hey, I'll help by opening my network doesn't fix that. It doesn't repair the structural issue. It's just sort of a very small plaster bedded. What could help? Does it help to have blind just code tests or things like that? Like there's a tool called Gap Jumpers that does that. that- I'm really familiar with Gap Jumpers. Yeah. Um, so yeah, y'all are just going to get a bunch of my like, here are my hiring opinions. I do think competency-based hiring can be really useful to say, okay, we're going to define the competencies for this role. We're going to clearly spell them out in the job description. We're going to go through and in a somewhat standardized way or a very standardized way, we're going to grade the applications that come in against this. And I really do like anonymization as well. So if somebody is sending in their resume or their CV, you don't need to know their, their name. Like you don't need to know potential gender markers. You don't need to know where they're located these days. It's a remote job, I bet. You don't need to know when they graduated from university. It's none of your business how old they are. Um, So I really do like competency-based hiring. I really do like anonymization applications. Uh, But I think the the larger question of how do we move past network hiring, maybe something I'm not terribly qualified for at the moment. I think I'm I'm a bit, hopeless sounds terrible. I think I've gotten to be terribly resigned, even in the best designed hiring process. The like, oh, we've got this bias reducing process where we go through this and go through that. And you talk to people who who are involved with it and you're like, oh, so there's absolutely no way for you to, for, for a candidate to skip any of these if they're exceptional and almost without question. They're like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely exceptions. And, and that becomes challenging because any exception is going to be used for folks who are going to benefit from bias and uh, bias interactions anyway. And when you do look at some of the most sort of insidious forms of discrimination and reprisals at work, they are places that have very clearly defined policies or very clearly defined structures just unevenly applied. Yeah, so I, I don't think it's hopeless. I do think these practices are useful for me scaling my scope down has been really useful to say, okay, it's 2021. Everything, are people still saying unprecedented? Everything is a lot right now for everyone. I'm going to try and be helpful to the 10 people I talked to this week or the five people I talked to this week in immediate and actionable ways and continue to have these conversations and continue to do small pieces of work around what structural change means. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And actually, that that reminds me of our conversation with Abadesi, where, you know, we talked about, you know, whose responsibility is it for structural change? And part of it, you know, it's not necessarily this person's or that person's, but at some point, you've kind of just got to do something, right? Take some sort of action, I suppose. Yeah. In the one-to-one calls I do, a lot of folks 
just need to talk about how hard things are or how hard they're trying and validate their approaches. And I was surprised to find myself maybe three or four years ago apologizing to someone saying they were someone who was looking for their first job in tech, which is terribly hard for a career changer. And I was saying, I'm so sorry, this isn't fair. This isn't the right way to hire. This has nothing to do with you or your skills. And then further articulate, you'd be like, they said, oh, you don't need to apologize. I was like, well, I mean, I think someone does like as an industry recognizing, hey, this isn't okay. This isn't fair. This isn't meritocratic. And while I don't want to pick up the mantle of, oh, cool, it's my job to apologize for tech all the time. When you're talking to someone how, um, who's been reasonably successful, who's been very lucky in my case, and they've had a, a good time at the industry and you're struggling, just say, this really isn't your fault. I'm so sorry. This is the fault. Like this is the responsibility of those of us who are here to be doing more. Yeah, that makes sense. And and so you mentioned validation, which I think brings us quite nicely on to imposter syndrome. So I was, I was kind of interested in sort of thinking about how sort of all the things we've sort of talked about in terms of starting out and sort of accessibility, like how, how does that sort of sow the seeds, I guess, of imposter syndrome? And, and is there a kind of relationship between how people sort of first experience tech and sort of how that their career kind of continues in, in the field and how they sort of think about it and approach sort of day to day, but also longer term career decisions. Yeah. And if uh, our dear listener hasn't heard of imposter syndrome, it's it's reasonably talked about, but it's sort of this, um, it was first documented back in the seventies. And it's this uh, psychological concept that someone who's impacted feels like they're a fraud. They're relatively well-skilled. They're getting by, they're doing okay, but they're just very, very conscious of gaps in their skill set or what they don't know, or that they're, they don't fit in or that they don't belong here and they're going to get found out. And I do see this as really challenging for folks early career. Like it it doesn't go away. You don't suddenly wake up and you're like, well, that's done. But I see this especially challenging for folks early career because there is so much to learn and there's so many directions to go in. I'd given a couple of talks about imposter syndrome years ago. And I think my 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 thinking on it's evolved somewhat. So I'd be like, oh hey, here's like small things you can do to mitigate these messages you're getting from your brain. And I think the longer I'm in industry and the more I talk to people, it really does feel like any advice around this feels like get passing out band-aids for a structural problem to say, oh, cool. Hey, you're uh, you're from a background marginalized in tech. And oh, let's talk to you about what you can do. It's, it's very much like BP telling us to mind our own carbon footprints before their own. Like, hey, <laughs> you're working in an environment where you're getting constant messages, subtle and overt, that you don't belong here. You don't know enough. You're being challenged around things you're great at. Here is a documented syndrome, but here's here's the way that this becomes your job to deal with. And I think the older I get, the less time I have for that. Um, we hear so much. So um, if um, if you're not familiar with it, Dunning-Kruger is sort of the same sort of issue on the other side of the competence spectrum. So both imposter syndrome and Dunning-Kruger exist because we're terrible at self-assessment. Like one cannot measure a tool by itself. Our brains don't know how good or how bad our brains are. And Dunning-Kruger is just way over, our gentle swear is okay. Oh yeah, you can definitely cuss, but what does Dunning-Kruger mean as well? Yeah, so Dunning-Kruger is just imposter syndrome way down on the other end of the dumbassery scale. And this was coined by two researchers, I want to say back in the 90s. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, actually. So the story's a little funny, sad. So there was a, a bank robber in the States who had decided to rob a bank, as you do if you're a bank robber. 
And if you've ever used lemon juice as invisible ink, you can write on a piece of paper and it doesn't, it's invisible until you hold it up to the light and it heats up. And this gentleman was like, oh gosh, I'm going to put lemon juice on my face so that I'm not visible on uh, the CCTV, on the, on the security cams when I go in. And to his credit, he did do a dry run. He like tried to take his picture, but the flash obscured it. Uh, so he's like, oh wow, cool. Totally works. I'm in like just one test run. And very understandably, he was caught and what expressed his surprise. And Dunning and Kruger, these two researchers were like, wow, do you think stupid people know they're stupid? Let's do some research, which is a bit of an unkind, a bit of an abrupt way to put it. So they took a bunch of graduate students and gave them an aptitude test. And then before showing them their results, they asked the students to chart how they think they did relative to their peers. And they found that the lowest performing quartile rated themselves artificially high. And then you got sort of an inverse X flattening out towards extreme competence. And they found that the more skilled you were in an area, the more likely you are to slightly to moderately underestimate. Whereas if you were like, I have no idea what any of this is about, I must have aced it. You've got this false boost. And I see a lot of discussions in tech around oh, imposter syndrome and how to deal with it and how to manage it. And these days I just want to yell like, no, 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 like turn these into talks about Dunning-Kruger. Like, yeah, it's not the competent people doubting themselves or the competent people questioning if they belong that I want to do this, that I really want to challenge here. It's, hey, here are the supremely comfortable incompetence who are bumbling through with absolute certainty in their hearts and minds. And I wonder if there's, we haven't even talked about intersection of race and marginalized people and people tend to be white men in tech, white cis men in tech who are the majority and probably have an inflated sense of self versus marginalized, people marginalized by the tech community have the opposite and maybe good. So. so a lot of early research around imposter syndrome. So Imes and Clance coined uh, the term back in, I want to say 70 something. Um, this will teach me to do a podcast without notes in front of me. Uh, and they specifically studied high achieving women. Their sample was pretty white. And then Vera Vasquez and Corona came along in 2006 and said, you know what, we've done a bit more research. We focused on high achieving women of color. And, and we, we found that they're disproportionately impacted. And I think throughout imposters and research, you've, we've seen this sort of replicated again and again, the, the less likely you are to get, and I may be confusing cause and effect, I may be inserting causality that doesn't belong, but that folks underrepresented and folks marginalized in a specific space reported imposter syndrome at a much higher rate. I'd be really interested to see if there's an inverse on the Dudding-Kruger side, that if like folks who are generally affirmed and generally told that they're doing quite a good job uh, get to live in Dunning-Kruger town more comfortably. I, I guess as well, um, I think sometimes we sort of valorise that kind of ability just to kind of go and do things. And maybe certain people are kind of allowed to or give, kind of given permission to do that more. But it feels like, I mean, particularly within tech, but maybe any, any other field, there is a kind of, you know, it's kind of celebrated. If you're someone who can, I'll give it a go, you know, I'll, I'll try my hand at that. There's a kind of, that's the kind of thing that's often sort of validated and rewarded in itself, I think. And coming from a education before technology this is something that i'm really really interested in because this is this is what we this is really carefully studied both across educational sciences and occupational sciences questions around who we let fail and who we reward for failure because that's massively unevenly applied so you do oh gosh all of my educational research is about 10 years out of date so so this is all a bit woofy but you do 
see folks who are from racial minorities or folks who are from marginalized backgrounds getting sort of one strike or no tolerance or three strikes rules in educational contexts and professional contexts and the ability to say, oh, well, you know, you didn't do this or this didn't work. You're not going to continue to get these opportunities. And there's a lot of research around, around women and perfectionism to say, okay, we are going to, there's a lot of social conditioning and messaging around, you must do this right versus a lot of messaging we'll see for more represented folks. We're like, well, you tried. Yeah. Here's the story of the scrappy founder who failed three times and came back. And it's really the story of here's someone who had the contacts, the luck, the grit, of course, because hard work does exist. But here's somebody who got people to continue to back them after three failures. And it also goes full circle back to job applications that women and minoritized groups are much more likely to not apply for a job unless they meet 100% of the requirements, while the major- the the dominant group in tech are much more likely to apply for any job. Yeah. So this comes from Hewlett Packard's study on internal promotions that I believe was around 2006. I don't know if I'm just in love with the, the year 2006 right now. I've said it about four times. And they found that and they, they were specifically looking around gender and they found that, oh, you know, women don't tend to apply unless they meet 100%. And we're f- seeing male applicants come in around 50, 60% of the job requirements before they'll apply. And this, this is like in advice giving, this is one of the ones that I have a difficult time with because a lot of the times I'm like, hey, you can ignore these job descriptions. You can ignore most of what they said. Like if they're saying that they want a Gupta developer and then they have a bunch of bullet points about other things, as long as you're a Gupta developer, you can apply. When really the conversation I want to be having more often is employers, what are you doing? Why are you stuffing this with, with nonsense? Define the competencies you want to see in this role and then be actively hiring specifically for that. Not, oh, well, you know, the person who was in this role before us was really good at this or did that. Let's try and hire for this specific thing. Or, oh, here are the, the bullet points that were in the job description already. Let's leave them and add to them. Like it creates a weird a weird category of additional understanding that you're required to, to know about. Like, oh, hey, these job descriptions have a secret code in them. You can ignore these kinds of things. Like that's not, that kind of learning and that kind of understanding isn't core to your job. I think it's silly we require people to do this to get the job. And you should be able to trust the job adverts. You should be able to trust, okay, you must have to know everything. And it's a sign of the company. But then on the other side, if we're talking about people that don't follow the most quote traditional path to tech with a four-year degree or something there and they go with a boot camp or self-taught, which I think is totally valid and they have more useful experience because they have a GitHub repo that they commit to and things like that, then there's that added issue that technology is actually filtering them out. It's really hard to get past LinkedIn or HR recruitment tools with a bootcamp tool. And unfortunately, the advice I often give at this situation is talk to people at companies you want to work for, see if they'll give you a referral. And that's not scalable and that's not accessible. And that's not fair for people who are geographically distributed, like people who can't hang out with someone else at a meetup, people who uh, whose primary language isn't English or French or German. Yeah. So saying, hey, here are the additional things that have nothing to do with the job that you're going to need to do to get the job is just absolutely exhausting. 
I wanted to, before we kind of move on uh, to something else, I wanted to ask you about, so imposter syndrome, we talked a little bit about kind of early career and starting out, but I'm interested in your perspective on sort of how it sort of might re-emerge, I guess, as you sort of progress in your career or as you kind of move sideways, maybe like how, how, I mean, I, I kind of wonder if imposter syndrome is something that sort of comes in waves at different points in someone's like career or life, I guess. So the most exciting thing about it is it doesn't go away. So you'll hear experts top of their field folks say, oh, I, I never had an idea what I was talking about, or oh gosh, this was so challenging for me. And I focused on early stage and early career folks, not because they feel it more or that goes away as you become more senior, but that as you get more industry validation, as you've got more job history, as you've got sort of more behind you, that how you feel often isn't as relevant to the results you're looking to get. As with public speaking, as with job interviews, as long as you're not visibly shaking nobody knows that you're terrified. But yeah, it is something where I'll talk to folks mid-career or senior who, who are on the job market for the first time in a long time and say, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing. Everything's terrible. Everything's scary. And I think it's really challenging in tech, especially because there's this broadcast bravado. Of course I know what I'm talking. Do you not know that thing? Oh, have you not heard of like Waffle Clip? Everyone's using Waffle Clip right now. There's this sort of temptation to pretend that you know what's going on when deep down everybody's just screaming in their heads these days. And I think that can be really persistent, can be really challenging to say, oh, you know what, I've got some change going on, or I've got something I've got to do, or this is unfamiliar. I'm going to get this really, really familiar sensation of fear and masquerading and not know what I'm doing. And that's just going to come right back. It's never going to go away. Often I like to sort of reframe it as a really buggy error message. So your brain is giving you these, oh, wow, we don't know what we're doing. Oh, wow, we're bad. We are very bad. This is bad. And in a very perverse way, that's sort of your one of your best clues that it's not Dunning-Kruger. So say, okay, Dunning-Kruger is to be terribly rubbish and have no idea that I'm rubbish. If I'm getting these persistent messages, I'm probably not chronically rubbish, but instead I've got enough of a base where I can go ahead and make decisions knowing I've got the competency to doubt myself. Yeah, I, th I think that self-awareness is kind of the first, you know, that's, that's a kind of important skill to have, I think, and being able to reflect on what you don't know. And then, you know, that you need that base to then move forward. So that's that's quite a valuable thing. I think it's it's just really how do you how do you kind of do you, do you kind of make that positive or do you kind of let it become a sort of negative and wear down your self-confidence, I suppose? Oh, and like I'm 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 very, very meditative about this these days where I'm just like, oh cool, like that's just the way brains work. It's just gonna keep doing this. There's nothing to do about it. The only thing you can really change is how you react. To it and what degree you react to it. And even that's very fancy. So, oh God, you could just control your emotional responses or your physical responses to a very panicky, bad feeling better. That's not accurate. Like people, we don't often choose the way we respond to stress. But I think as I do continue to advance in age, it's just like, okay, this is just something that's going to continue to happen. This is just the way my brain's going to be every now and again. I'm going to look for external assessment. I'm going to keep, no, um, like I keep, I confess I'm one of those bores with a paper journal. I'm going to keep a paper journal so I can flip back through and see what I've gotten done this week or this month. And I'm going to look at external points around these specific skills to either show me where I do need to improve or encourage me to chill out. You mentioned earlier uh, decision paralysis, which I think is a really nice phrase. Uh, and kind of in my notes, I mentioned the anxiety of curiosity and I'm sort of interested in your sense of sort of how how we should or how you kind of go about 
making decisions about what you do learn and what you do invest your time and energy in to sort of develop yourself or also just to kind of feel fulfilled, I guess. Yeah. And I'm just going to continue to bang on about this and sound a bit repetitive, but I do want to stress that this is an incredible luxury. So for me to be saying, oh, here's my take on self-directed learning and here's my take on curiosity as someone who doesn't have kids and doesn't have caring responsibilities, who's working part-time, a lot of the things that I'm interested in, or I might suggest aren't going to be suitable for other people and really recognize like it it would be terribly bold to be like, oh, well, I recommend this book and this approaches. The first thing I'd, I'd say is it really depends on how much space you have. And when I'm talking about space, I'm talking about, so I'm really interested in cognitive sciences. I'm really interested in cognitive psychology. I should add that while I do a bunch of, with all this, this part-time free time, a lot of MOOCs and a lot of reading that I'm not qualified in this space. So a lot of mine is just sort of very, very friendly pop psychology and ingestion. But cognitive psychology has these twin concepts of working memory. And this is going to be very familiar for computer scientists. It's like how much think space you have. And cognitive load, which is how much of that think space is filled up by all the different processes you're running. And I think that like how we plan our learning and how we interact with it and how we respond to it really depends on how much space we have to give it. So there can be a lot of, and I won't go into motivation because I'll just, I'll just be monologuing at you all forever, but motivation learning is absolutely fascinating. But the big kinds of learning I see self-directed in tech are purpose-driven and reflexive. Oh, I've been told that I need to learn the cookie. I bet there is a framework called cookie. I've been told I need to learn the cookie framework for, to get this next job or, Hey, I need to learn this, or I need to brush up on this. I must do X and X specifically is relatively clear motivation and direction. Whereas there's, Oh, I've forgotten the name. There's a fantastic open source project that lets you curate learning paths. I'll pass it to you all for the show notes. I'm, I'm terrible, but you can say, okay, I need just to do X and X is what I'll be focusing on. I'll be doing different tasks around X versus I'm going to wander around. I'm generally interested in this vague space. I'm going to be browsing. I'm going to be examining this. And I really like these two sort of focused versus meandering uh, learning direction styles, because I think they mirror uh, the way we often think. So there's a neuroscientist who I, I was about to say I recommend, but I don't think I could recommend a person named Barbara Oakley. I recommend her talks and I recommend her books. Um, she does a, a fantastic Coursera course, uh, learning how to learn. Um, and she really focuses on the neuroscience of learning and like how our brains adapt, what practical takeaways we can apply to this. And a concept she talks about a lot are the concepts of focused. So that, that sounds a lot like one of the things you just talked about and diffuse thinking and focused is I'm reading this textbook. I'm drilling these flashcards. I'm focusing on this one thing. Whereas diffuse is, okay, I've been doing some focus learning. I'm going to wander. I'm going to go ride my bike. I'm going to think around this. I'm going to daydream. Um, And I often look at these two different ways to learn in the same space and say, oh, I can come at this in either a very direct or very structured approach. I want to get better at blue widgets. This is what I'm doing versus, oh, I'm really interested in the infrastructure space more generally. I'm going to sort of, like a large herbivore, sort of gently browse this. And Richard, you've just reminded me that the learning path open source project that I quite like is learn-anything.xyz, xyz. (laughs) 
I've lived here a long time. For our, our listeners, I'm American but live in the UK, so I just sounded very weird. I do apologise. <laughs> I haven't come across it before, actually, but it, it looks really cool. So you just, yeah, once you go on the on the on the site, you you just type in what you want to learn, and I think it will just come up with a load of different things related to that or ways of learning it as well. And I quite like it. Seems to have lots of like options for learning as well, and I kind of like that diversity of sort of approaches as well. Because, like you say, I think you people can be in kind of slightly different learning modes. I guess like whether you want to graze when you want this broad perspective or whether you want to really focus and learn a very specific skill and I think I think kind of being cognizant of that those differences is, is quite important and something that I don't think we often talk about or reflect on really um, and another resource I quite like I love that I'm just like rawr please have all my favorite learning resources I also really recommend open syllabus for self-directed learners who want to uh, mirror the kinds of resources or the kinds of experiences they would get in a classroom setting. Uh, so this is where um, students at universities or in higher education, grad school, can take their syllabus and just give it the Open Syllabus Project at opensyllabus.org. And you can go through and say, hey, if I'm interested in learning uh, computer science, what are the top 10 textbooks that are being? Oh, hey, I want to learn Japanese. What are universities assigning? And you can drill down to say, oh, what are they What are they teaching at the University of Birmingham for glassblowing? And, and I don't know if the University of Birmingham is a fantastic school, and I'm not sure if they have glass blowing. And I just really like the sort of democratizing aspect of that. It can be really frustrating for folks who um, don't have the funds and don't have the time to access these courses. Like you can't take a year off and spend $15,000, $20,000, $50,000 on a course and then say, oh, well, here are these books or here are these papers you can access. I'm always really careful to warn people away. So maybe you've heard of sci-hub.com. If you wanted to search for where is sci-hub now to better avoid the this resource. Uh, SciHub is a pirate website that republishes free uh, free academic journals and free academic papers. Of course, you want to avoid this incredibly useful resource that would give you academic papers for free. Please don't go on DuckDuckGo and look for where is SciHub now. It would be dreadful. <laughs> of course. Yes, we certainly don't condone that sort of activity. No, it would be it would be absolutely. And it's still a bad thing to do, even if paying for the journal articles doesn't send any money to academics. Yeah, it's bad for reasons, abstract reasons. <laughs> but do 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 use a VPN and do use DuckDuckGo. Like, yeah, get set up a tour browser if you are going to do this terrible thing, which I do not recommend. When you talk about all these things you can learn and this idea, like Rich said, the anxiety of curiosity, it's also curiosity, but to bring it full circle, there's a lot of imposter syndrome and people think they have to study, study, but then if they're doing self-study or even if they're using a MOOC like edX or Coursera, I guess you can pay to get those certifications still on your LinkedIn, but it goes full circle. Is the, first of all, is this not leading to more burnout? Does this not lead to more imposter syndrome when you're like, oh, there's so many things I don't know. And once I have to, yeah, yeah, it has to be full circle. And then it's still not putting things on people's resumes or CVs that sadly gets them hired, even though it's more relevant. So it's a very vicious circle. I think that's a really interesting point as well. Looking at sort of hiring for credentialism versus hiring for the knowledge of the skills synthesis so saying, oh, wow, you've been spending the last year learning about UX research and running these side projects and doing all these other things, but you don't have, I've never heard. Yeah. 
you'd have to be a terrible employer to ask, oh, you don't have a master's, but there's a lot of bad employers out there. So really being conscious, like I think that this drive to learn, especially in the 2020s, and especially with the world being unsettled, a lot of it does come from economic uneasiness. So, oh gosh, I need to learn this. I need to do this. I need to. And I almost always hear from people, as soon as I do X, or as soon as I learn Y, then I can relax. Have you heard of the concept of a hedonic treadmill? No, I'm actually no. Oh, good. It ruined my day when I learned about this. So I'm I'm just going to ruin it as many other people's day as possible. (laughs) The hedonic treadmill is a concept that when humans, this makes me sound like a bit of an alien. So when people, that's how we say that, uh, when people make a material improvement to our lives, our satisfaction with our lives goes up. That that seems reasonably normal, right? Like, oh, I got a new job or I got a raise or, oh, I I got this degree or, oh, I finished this course. My satisfaction with my life, my, my circumstances have improved. I'm going to improve prove this. Uh, But the hedonic treadmill is a documented effect where that spike only lasts for a little while. And then we like level back out. So we thought, okay, this is, I'm going to readjust to how my life is now. This is how it is. I need to go chase this next professional development. I go need to chase this next thing to get that next. Oh gosh, this has improved my life spike. And then, oh, okay. I'm going to even out again. Um, And I think it's, it's really challenging because with learning, there are these very abstract, very disconnected from rewards benefits. So, hey, this is cognitively good for you. There's some really interesting research around brain plasticity. So are like brains changing as adults that's come out since I think 2014 that that I, I find so reassuring. But the idea that you can shape your brain and make it better and that learning these things let you have more informed conversations, you do your job better. I'm, I'm less fussed about the do your job better. And I'm such a weirdo. I'm like, no, learn for learning's sake, even though that's not the way the world works. That's not what we've structured our economies for. But recognizing that there is this, oh, wow, the joy of learning, oh, these benefits you get. And that's going to be impossibly disconnected from the way m- many of us learn and the way many of us are incentivized to learn. I do think you're right around burnout and imposter syndrome. There's always going to be more. There's always going to be this next thing to race towards. And yeah, I think it's a combination of doing enough to meet the requirements that the industry insists upon, as ridiculous as they often are, uh, with making your DIY uneasy ongoing peace with your own discomfort, with not knowing enough or not feeling secure enough in your knowledge. One of the very exciting things about being around in the industry long enough is like, oh, cool. I have no idea what I'm doing, uh, but I've been freaked out for long enough where I'm just very, very chill about it these days. Ooh, possibly burned out on being, being rubbish. Mm. Yeah, I think I think your I think your point or all the points you've made really are quite a nice corrective to kind of some of this like ongoing conversation about kind of learning to code and this sort of this quite sort of crude way of thinking about technical skill, um, which I think actually maybe imparts or sort of misrepresents the industry and what you need to do to succeed or to even enjoy your kind of work. I think when you sort of frame, you know, working in tech as, okay, learn X, Y, and Z programming languages, like you say, it's not, that's not going to necessarily get you the job, but equally, it's not really what working in technology is about and what you actually do as a technologist whether it's a developer or anything else so I think yeah rethinking how we talk about technical skill is quite an important thing to do and to piggyback off of that I think an additional challenge is that you do get and and like they tend to be more at the senior level which is terribly unfair but there are these absolutely bananas interdisciplinary roles where it's like oh hey I do a little bit of AI and I do some design work and I do some sociology research and those exist but they do tend to be at more senior levels they do tend to be sort of more difficult to source 
And we absolutely seem to put a requirement that you come into tech and you do your time and you build your work history based on, okay, you're going to need these technical skills that won't necessarily be things that you're going to do in five or 10 years. But for some reason, we're going to require you to have these specific design skills or have these specific programming skills or have these specific architectural skills before we're going to let you progress on and make contributions uh, where you may have more interest and there may be a larger benefit. And at a startup, that seems even more ridiculous how many requirements they have, especially when you get into the AI machine learning space, these job descriptions are insane, but the startup could likely pivot so much that you need a different mindset than a skill set. And so many times you'll talk to somebody and be like, oh, wow, how'd you get a job there? They're, they're, they're so hard on hiring. And be like, oh yeah, I knew a guy and like, it was just a good fit. Like we clicked. And I was like, clicked, you clicked, get out. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most scary and one of the most reassuring things that I continually learn is that the folks who are in positions of power and the folks who are making these decisions and the folks where you're like, of course, folks that far up the chain in the industry and the decision makers know what they're doing are not necessarily any better informed or better fit to make these decisions that the same way you have no idea what you're doing sometimes. Uh, genuinely, not just a feeling. Uh, the folks who are making these big industry um, moving decisions are often not always exceptionally qualified in their own right. No one knows what they're doing and everything is glorious chaos. Yeah, I think that that's such a good point, actually. And it's, I mean, it sounds obvious once you've worked anywhere for a few weeks, but I think even when I was like starting out working, like you come out of university or school and you you sort of think, okay, well, if I prove myself, then everything will be fine and people will kind of validate me. But actually, you know, the people that you work for don't really know what they're doing and they probably don't even really know why they've hired you sometimes, which is... The interesting things about Dunning-Kruger is it's the inability to see skill. It's the inability for the unskilled to see skill. And there's sort of multiple levels to it. So they, they sort of paper Dunning and Kruger, their findings said, uh, the unskilled are unable to see their own lack of skill. And much more excitingly, I love this one. The unskilled, and I, th I think they say the chronically, the terminally, terminally makes it sound like it'll kill you. The, the, the dreadfully unskilled are also unable to see skill in other people. So oftentimes the people who suck have no idea that you don't suck. They wrapped up their findings saying, oh, it is possible for the unskilled to, to move past this, but only if they recognize their own lack of skill. It's very much a like go to one problem where it's like, oh, I don't know. I suck. I don't know. You're good. And I can move past this, but only if I come to recognize that I suck. And I wonder if you then network with other people who are in the same group as you do. People tend to group around where they fall on that spectrum or scale. So then the unskilled people are hiring other unskilled people and it's just becoming a vicious cycle again. Almost everyone is bad at hiring. Oh gosh, none of this has been really reassuring. I do keep like a back pocket, non-depressing fun fact if we have to get it out for it at any point. So, so we, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I will give you the chance to give any positive stories now. Oh um, gosh, and, yeah. And sort of just, just to sort of talk about mainly sort of what you're like looking forward to over the next sort of 12, 18 months or so, but also maybe what you're working on or what you're yeah, excited to work on. I'd be really happy to. So yeah, things that are hopeful. I do see absolutely brilliant, interesting people like have a difficult time getting into tech, but getting here and staying here. 
I see beautiful, interesting people leave on their own terms as well. And I think that's something we very rarely celebrate when somebody's like, cool, I am going to go see if I want to run a farm, I'm out. Yeah, we're working in tech. It's very easy to see and it's it's appropriate and our responsibility to see where we failed, where we're not matching up, where we're not serving people, because these are the spaces of our responsibility. And I think that, yeah, the, the ability to recognize, oh, wow, there are small, bright flowers in these fields of our great responsibility feels a little bit reassuring. Uh, the things I'm excited about in the next 12 to 18 months, there's a new cohort at Kalilimu. There's a, a Kenyan university that does a, a mentorship cohort that's just absolutely fantastic. I'm I'm so excited to see that. Uh, Free Code Camp, one of my favorite online learning resources, is putting together and, and, and funding, if anybody wants to go donate, a really comprehensive, really nice looking data science course. Yeah, there are people doing wonderful, brilliant things to support each other. And I think those are like what I'm working on is, is like, much more selfish. So I genuinely love my job for the first time in a long time. If anybody is work, like, I'm so sorry, very, very small rubbish plug. If anybody is working on a JavaScript code base and wants to try out a stealth tool for free, for free, I don't want to sell nothing to, to better understand and read them. Just I'm Jess at codec.io if you want a sneak peek. And while I am really excited, like, oh, cool, the startup's going to move out of stealth. I'm going to be able to talk about it a bit more. I'm going to be able to do more things where I interact with more people and more users around this. Uh, very selfishly, a lot of the stuff I'm excited about with comes from working part-time. So, oh, cool. There is space to do more outreach. There is space to bring. I've been running a community-run programming uh, group. So it's like, oh, cool. As vaccination rates rise, to be able to come back and bring that back. Yeah, a lot of the things I'm hopeful for, while I do love my job and I do love working at Codesy and I do love my team, a lot of the things I'm really excited for personally in the next 12, 18 months are things that I've bought by having this extra free time, which is a huge privilege. And having things outside of work is how you help avoid burnout as well. So you need a balance. Hopefully I'm doing a better job now that I'm not exhausted and miserable all the time. Yeah. Um, one word I, I, you sort of mentioned at the end was responsibility. And I think that's quite a nice, it's, a, it's an important word for anyone sort of working, both in terms of thinking about your sort of purpose and what you're doing. So you're always doing it for someone. I mean, partly to yourself, obviously, the work you do is for a good life, I guess. Um, and also like for, you know, say your users, I think having that broader sense of, okay, this is my like, not necessarily mission, maybe that's a bit highfalutin, but that sense of okay this is why I do what I do and that that sort of gives you a sense of okay I'm going to learn this or I'm going to do this and I think that that sort of broader animating sort of force is is quite useful to have actually and gives you a sense of perspective. And not to sort of bring it down and make it sound much heavier but when we think about the responsibility that we have as people building and as people maintaining, as people designing systems that, and users makes it sound very much like people have opted into this, but we're building systems that people don't really have an option. So there are technologists building algorithms that work in the criminal justice system to say, hey, if you are taken by the system, you're going to be impacted by what we've built, whether or not you've decided to. Oh, here are algorithms around schooling. Here's, and uh, like, if you work at, oh, I was, about to soften the idea of an evil corp, but I, I won't. If you're working someplace where your work has significant ethic, negative ethical impacts on people, if you're working at a company where, oh gosh, we accidentally facilitated another one of those genocides, let's put out a PR release. 
having the ethical responsibility of saying like, I need to at least have a, at the very least, have a conversation with myself to say, what is the output of my work? What is my, what's the responsibility I hold as I go into this work? And is there an ethical way for this work to be done? Like, am I, should I be participating in this? It sounds very bold to say as a worker, I should opt out, but, and this isn't true around technology. And this is especially untrue in tech roles globally. But if you're listening to this podcast and you're in a relatively well-heeled tech role, if you're in a Western economy and you're making more than 60 or 70% of the median wage, you absolutely have the additional responsibility, especially with unemployment rates in certain tech fields being so low, saying, is this a job I actually need? Do I have a choice about this work I do? And I do I have the ethical responsibility to interrogate this further? And we I'm a are- hit at parties. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, who has parties now anyway? There's no need for that. No one wants a Zoom party anymore. No parties needed. Yeah. And I think we also have to respect and or at least acknowledge those that do stick with those companies, but are whistleblowing because they also have an important role to play more and more to let us know what's actually happening in those lock boxes. If we're building the future, we need to really be thinking about what the hell kind of future we are building. We're responsible. That's probably a nice place to leave it. But Jess, I'll give you a chance to promote kind of anything else you've got. Um, where can people find you on Twitter as well or oh. anywhere else on the web? Oh, no, my Twitter is just all my bad ideas. Um, I'm at <laughs> Jesslyn Rose on Twitter. If you want to come see what we're doing at CodeSea, it's at CodeSea.io. Uh, but these days, the only thing I really want to plug is being as gentle to yourself as you can. Like everything's stressful. It's not like, hey, check this thing out or buy this thing or sign up for like just... If you can take this weekend off, it's it's a good time to. Very good yeah. reminder. Don't work all weekends or whenever your weekend falls, because it may be on a Monday and take time off. Like, yeah, yeah if I can send anybody to go outside and play, um, that that's what I'd like to do. One thing I didn't ask you about, maybe just put it in quickly, uh, about Bomb Lab in Birmingham. Oh, I oh gosh, I, 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 rubbish, I should plug. Bomb Lab because it's fantastic. It's a really fantastic art gallery in the intersection of art and technology, which is a very busy cross street these days. But they've been busy and we've been busy all through lockdown in the UK. So there's some really fantastic online exhibitions. The gallery is going to be opening back up in a couple of weeks again um, with lots and lots of safety measures. And the other fellows and the organizers there are just absolutely brilliant. They've got biohackers. They've got photographers looking at the, the nature of gender. They've got people working on experimental photography machines. They've got glitch artists. It's just an absolute joyous bundle of noise. Oh, and if I can also plug, Birmingham is the best city in the United Kingdom, so you should probably come visit. Oh, yeah. Um, that's probably a good place to leave it. Um, <laughs> Definitely yeah. the friendliest I've found. Yeah, yeah. Take that, it's Manchester. England, yeah. <laughs> which is also quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's great. So thank, thanks for joining us. It was, uh, it's been a really great conversation. Lots of interesting stuff. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So that's pretty much everything for this week's show. Once again, thank you to Jess for taking the time to talk to us. And as always, thank you as well for listening 
listening to what we talk about when we talk about tech. Remember to check out our website for earlier episodes. That is talkabouttechpodcast.com. And of course, follow us on Twitter. We are at underscore talkabouttech. Um, yeah, please give us a follow. You can follow me. I am at Rich G. Gall on Twitter. Jennifer is at JK Riggins. So yeah, please give us a follow. And of course, I should also mention on the website, you can find the links to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. So yeah, please do that. Anyway, we'll be back next time with another guest. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, please stay safe and have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.